electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Deirdre Boza, and you're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Good Friday morning. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with Deirdre Bosa and John Ford. The Nasdaq is trying to recover some losses this morning after falling more than 5% on Thursday, as you know, now down about a quarter of a percent. Actually, the NDX wrestling with going green. Tech stocks and valuations, though, as you know, have had lots of volatility in the last 48 hours. Mike Santoli is going to start us off with some perspective as we try to hold gains for the week on the S&P. Yeah, Carl, a little bit of the pressure being taken off yields coming in a little bit. So there's a sort of a of a buy the dip. But, you know, as we go down in price, always want to point out, you also go back in time. The Nasdaq composite over two years. Uh, you see how far we're going back. I noted uh, that September uh, first or second of 2020 number uh, here you see below 12,000 on the uh, on the Nasdaq composite so you're within kind of the rounding error of that maybe we'll see if that seat turns out to be something now of course a lot of folks also pointing out how many stocks have retraced all the way back to pre-pandemic levels of course it's the core COVID beneficiary stocks they did it but even some of the larger names have also done so take a look at a breakdown of uh, for the big Nasdaq heavyweights of course also huge in the S&P 500 those that have and haven't held up. So this goes back to February 19th of 2020, which is essentially right before the stock market really started to price in uh, COVID. And what you see is the huge divergence. So Apple still a double just about from that point. Microsoft uh, up almost 50 percent, holding on to it. Those two stocks, Apple, Microsoft, roughly 13 percent of the S&P 500. So call it almost one seventh, one eighth of the S&P. And they're really doing a lot of work to keep the rest of the market up here. Uh, Amazon, 9 percent up from that point. Uh, You see, though, it's really kind of uh, had a, a rough go lately and maybe has to retrace. And here you have Obviously, Meta, which has its own issues, but still worth noting. Now, uh, did some back of the envelope math. If uh, Apple and Microsoft were to unwind all of their pandemic gains, that alone would probably mean 5% more down on the S&P. Nobody says that can happen uh, any time quickly, but it's just for, for some perspective of where we are uh, relative to back then. And, and Carl, you know, some of, those talk, some of the talk is always that nobody's left unscathed if you have a real bear move. Oh, Mike, thanks. Yeah, for sure. And if those two came down 5%, you can bet they wouldn't be alone. It wouldn't happen in isolation, Mike. Uh, Our next guest, meanwhile, is a major early-stage tech investor, former PayPal mafia, uh, early into names like Twitter, Facebook, Uber, Slack, Lyft, Airbnb, Affirm. The list goes on. Let's bring in Kraft Ventures co-founder David Sachs. David, great to have you back. Good morning. So, I mean, my, my feeling is this market certainly isn't good, but it's not that bad Yet it could get a lot worse, in part because it hasn't been so bad for long. Like those of us who remember, you know, really bad markets, it, it kind of stinks for a long time. Well, it depends where you're sitting. You know, I think if you're just looking at the indices, which are so weighted to the large caps, you don't really realize how much carnage there there's been. From where I'm sitting in Silicon Valley, this is the worst environment 
that I've seen since the dot-com crash, even worse than the Great Recession of 2008, 2009. And the reason is because, you know, again, below those, those large caps who dominate the indices, all the sort of the, the recent IPOs, the SPACs, the growth stocks, the, you know, the newer listings, the SaaS companies, the fintech companies, they've all been hammered by what's happened over the last six months. We're talking about 70, 80% plus corrections. And that has caused an enormous reset in, uh, in Silicon Valley. It started in the public companies. Now it's trickled down to growth companies. And it's basically caused a chilling effect on the whole ecosystem. This is the worst environment I've seen since, um, you know, again, since something like 2001, 2002. Yeah, but aren't we still, I shouldn't say we, so many uh, entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley still kind of in the denial stage of this. We were just talking to Bill Gurley about this earlier in the week. It's hard for people to accept that the valuation they thought they had is not necessarily the real valuation right now. And it's going to take some real indicators uh, coming up for that to happen, right? I mean, the public market matters for the, for the private markets in that sense. I, I wonder what you think is going to happen with the IPO market going forward for the rest of 22 and into 23, and how significant that's going to be for showing us where we are? I think it's going to be significantly chilled. I just think that there's going to be a lot fewer companies going public than there were over the last couple of years. Um, you know, There's going to be more scrutiny towards those companies. Uh, growth valuations in general are going to be lower. Uh, there's going to be a lot more down rounds. There's going to be a lot more structure in deals where founders are seeking to preserve a valuation that would be hard to get today. So, yeah, I mean, it's a very negative environment. Now, to your point about, you know, what, what Bill said about, um, about sort of founders adapting, you know, the reality is that venture prices are more sticky in the public markets. They get marked continuously every day, whereas in venture markets, you only get a mark when you raise a funding round. And a lot of founders made hay while the sun shined and raised a lot of money last year, and they have some discretion over when they're going to go raise. And so a lot of founders don't want to raise right now for the very valid reason that the market is the venture market is terrible, uh, but eventually, at the end of the year, going into next year, founders will be forced to raise, and we're going to get a lot of new marks, and we're going to basically see that the price levels today are very different than they were last year. And I think founders are already getting the memo. I think there was some denial of this maybe in Q1, but the founders I've talked to now uh, are pretty aware of what's going on, and I think the mood has shifted very quickly, uh, even among founders in, in Silicon Valley. David, over the last month or so, I've also been asking unicorn CEOs, those are private companies with valuations over a billion dollars. I've been asking the CEOs of these companies um, if they're looking at lower valuations, either internally um, or externally as they raise new rounds. So a few like GoPuff and Bolt um, about a month ago have told me that they're not seeing their valuation lower. They're different for some reason or another. Is it possible that there are some startups that are able to escape this kind of haircut. Also, I would point to yesterday, Shopify announcing that it acquired Deliver for $2 billion, $2.1 billion, which is actually above where they raised a few months ago. Well, nobody's going to escape this valuation reset, but uh, there are startups or, or companies that can grow fast enough to grow into their valuation because, again, they don't get marked um, unless they raise a new round. So let me give you an example. Last year, the rule of thumb for valuations on SaaS companies was around 100 times ARR. That's just where deals were getting priced, somewhere below, somewhere above, but that was the rule of thumb. I would say now the new rule of thumb is still landing. We're still trying to figure out what that level is, but a reasonable guess is 20 times ARR. You know, Maybe if you're a believer in the company, you would give them 
credit for, say, end of year ARR, but it's something more like 20 to 30 times. Now, you know, that's basically a 80% decrease in valuation levels. However, if the company has grown 5x or 6x since their last round, then they're able to basically get a flatter up round. So mm-hmm. a company can always fight the lower valuation multiple by growing into and exceed their their old uh, th- their old valuation. And so, you know, we're investing in companies that are tripling year over year. If you triple year over year for two years, that's a 9x increase. Even if valuation levels have dropped by 80%, you're going to get an up round. So that's basically the only way out of this, I think, is for companies to grow into it. And what they want to do, I think, is lengthen their runway so they don't need to raise a round before they have grown into and exceeded their old valuation. Right. And David, as you look in the public markets and if investors are looking for opportunity, um, of course, there's parallels to what happened during the dot-com bust, so we're not there yet. Um, But just in terms of what kind of companies, how do you discern what kind of quality is actually going to get some of these companies to above pre-pandemic or at pre-pandemic levels like an Amazon during that time? And what's going to be a Cisco, you know, a company that could still be important, but will never actually reach that valuation that it saw at its peak and therefore may not be good investments? Well, I think what happens is that when you're in a bull market and a boom, the only three things that matter are growth, growth, and growth. And what happens in a down market is all of a sudden people realize that burn and margins are important as well. And so what matters in a down market is growth, your margins, your basically your, your, your cash flow, and again, how much money you're burning. And right now, it is absolutely fatal to be a startup that has negative gross margins or an excessive burn rate. And so startups really need to fix those. But Amazon wasn't profitable back then. Well, but but I'm talking about gross profit, right? So, you know, it's okay, I think, for, I think companies that are still growing fast can justify uh, not being cash flow positive, although certainly it's better if you are. But, But the key is gross margins. Do you have healthy gross margins? And companies with negative or low gross margins are just not fundable in the current environment. David, uh, Finally, something that you said that I want to go back to, because I think there's something in it. You're talking about uh, your your startup portfolio. I think there's something in it for public market investors as well. Do you even believe growth projections at this point that CEOs come to you with? Or do you assume that the Fed is going to effectively slow down just about everything? So even if their growth has been strong at this point, if they have been tripling, yeah, they'll continue to grow, but maybe not at that rate. Yeah, I think so. Here's the wild card right now. Is it feels to me like we're going into a recession. You had negative 1.4% GDP growth in Q1. Obviously, we don't know what Q2 is yet. I heard Powell the other day brush off these concerns about recession, saying it wasn't foreseeable in the next year. That's not what I'm seeing. You know, what I'm seeing from where I sit in the boards that I'm on, every single company is now worried and is pulling back on their spending in order to lengthen their runway and preserve capital because they know that capital is less available and the next round is going to be more expensive if they can raise it at all. So what I'm seeing from my micro perspective is a massive pullback and slowdown. And I don't really, and and at some point this all becomes self-fulfilling, right? If everyone believes that we're headed into a recession, they pull back on their spending and the recession becomes inevitable. That's where it feels to me like we're at. And so when I hear Powell sort of brushing off these recession fears, it sounds like a year ago when he brushed off the inflation fears, saying they were transitory. I think that we're headed here potentially for a very severe recession. Uh, that's what it already feels like in Silicon Valley. And really, the only question is whether Silicon Valley is the canary in the coal mine or not. Yeah, well, he is the pilot. Uh, and to, to stretch the metaphor, and 
when you're hoping for a soft landing, you certainly don't want to hear the pilot say, ah, I might not be able to land this plane. Uh, David Sachs, F- thank Feels you. pretty bumpy from here. Yeah, thank you, yeah, guys. Yeah, it does. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. We have certainly felt that this week. Uh, And this earnings mover has felt that, too. That would be DoorDash. It has been volatile this morning. 35% revenue growth in Q1 was boosting that stock earlier this morning. However, it was down huge. And now we're nearly flat. Um, The Nasdaq, meanwhile, posting losses for a second straight day. With me now is DoorDash CEO Tony Hsu. Tony, you are our first guest in the studio for over two years. So welcome to you. Thanks for the honor. Let's get right into it. Dash, DoorDash is an investment mode. You guys are expanding your international footprint, your own warehouse network. Uh, you said on the call last night that you are still hiring at aggressive rates. Does that get pulled back if the economy softens this year, given the macroeconomic backdrop? Yeah, well, I appreciate the question. I mean, we're trying to build the largest local commerce company in the world. And so there's a lot to do there. I mean, we're trying to bring everything inside the neighborhood to you and bring incremental demand to all these physical businesses. On the other hand, we're trying to convert all these physical businesses and give them the tools to become digital powerhouses. What we've seen so far is we've been very resilient and fortunate as a business to have a very profitable core U.S. restaurants business that has given us the fuel and positive cash flows to be able to reinvest to go beyond restaurants, beyond the United States, and beyond just our marketplace, but also build a platform for local commerce globally. Yeah, so I know that your free cash flow being positive is sort of a a key point here, but it feels like what investors are saying right now amid this macroeconomic backdrop is they don't want company CEOs to build. They want them almost to preserve cash, preserve profits, get closer to it on a net income level, not just adjusted EBITDA. So um, does that make you reconsider your plans at all if we're heading into a year where that sort of desire from investors could be even more pronounced? Well, the goal for DoorDash is to maximize total profit dollars over the long run. We think that's not only great for the the interest of all of our audiences, but also the best for shareholders. And I think while that may take, you know, some resilience and patience through, you know, certainly this period of volatility, a lot of external factors. I mean, what we see internally and in the fundamentals is all-time highs in our user base, all-time highs in our DashPass subscriber program, as well as order frequency across all cohorts, as well as increasing profitability in an already profitable business, which is our U.S. restaurants business. And so when I combine these factors, right now is the time to invest for the future at DoorDash. So what I'm hearing is that your strategy will not change given the macroeconomic backdrop, but in the long term, you're still hoping and looking for that to pay off. Um, In terms of your driver supply, um, it's so curious to me why you guys have not had the same issues as Uber and Lyft. I'm not just talking about this year, but post-pandemic last year when the ride-sharing companies were spending so much money to get drivers onto their platform. CEO Darwar Khosr Shah, he said again this week that cross-selling on its platform between Eats and Rides um, has been a big boost in terms of that metric, active drivers. Um, Is that true? Do you guys need a ride-sharing business? Well, we actually don't see any connection between delivering goods and delivering people. And structurally, we actually you know, have seen that we have a much larger pool of workers who are interested in delivering goods. In fact, we have more dashers, you know, these folks who are doing the deliveries than even folks in ride sharing with drivers. And as a result of that, that's really because of just structural differences. You know, people who you know, don't want to have people inside the, ve- the same vehicle, people who really care about their safety, people who don't see it as a full-time opportunity. Again, 90% of the dashers on DoorDash do fewer than 10 hours of work. 
The average dasher a does week? a week. The average dasher does four hours a week. So when you think about it, you know, from that perspective, you know, we represent hundreds of industries, people who, you know, can be everything from U.S. Olympians to retail workers to students. Um, they're all dashing. As a result, we just have a structurally fundamental advantage over any other form of part-time work. John's got a question for you. Hey, Tony, good morning, and I'll mention, hey, John. Uh, yeah, as, as we're talking, uh, DoorDash stock uh, kind of tipping into the green a bit. I, I want to ask you about inflation through the lens of, of DoorDash, but on a couple of uh, areas in particular. One is Dash Pass, because you've got uh, some subscription providers like in Netflix and others leaning more into advertising because they believe that consumers might be subscription sensitive. I wonder how that plays out with Dash Pass. And then your retooled pricing for restaurants, which you did during the pandemic, where you know now it's a little bit more a la carte. Restaurants can choose how much they want you for marketing versus how much for delivery. How is all that playing out? Are you finding that um, more DoorDash customers are using you to order from restaurants and go pick it up themselves? And how does that affect your growth, your margins, your profitability? Yeah, well, well inflation is certainly a very real um, issue that that we take very seriously. We've been looking at it, you know, actually many, many years ago, you know, kind of seeing some of the uptake in consumer prices rising. And, you know, for us, it's always been about making sure all of our audiences are taken care of, you know, and that really starts in this case with our, uh, with the dashers, um, you know, making sure that they get 10% cash back on fuel expenses, that, you know, dashers who are um, driving longer distances actually get bonuses for that work. For merchants, to your point, um, giving them a suite of tools to pick and choose, you know, is this now a time to invest to offset some of the rising costs and some of the challenges? Or, you know, for others who maybe are seeing some labor pressures and, and other forms of, you know, struggle on the supply front, you know, it, 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 is it an opportunity to do things like pickup or other forms of business and, and just giving them the tools to choose between the spectrum of growth and profitability. And, and all of this is on the backdrop of the fact that we've seen very strong resilience from consumer demand, even in the face of some of this inflationary pressure. And I think that's because we have the greatest privilege of serving a business where people eat three times a day, and that's you know 90 times a month. And when you have that many shots on goal, and when you think about where consumers are gonna spend, even in spite of inflationary pressures, food consumption is certainly at the top of the list. Tony, can you give me a little bit of data on the degree to which DoorDash is enabling transformation in restaurant business models. You and I have talked in the past about restaurants trialing different uh, concepts out of the same kitchen and, and thus able to grow that way. You guys have started doing more distance delivery of letting people, say, order from a great barbecue place in Memphis and have the frozen food shipped to them. To what degree is that working? To what degree is that profitable for the businesses involved? And do you view that uh, as a driver going forward? We want to be the first place where a restaurant or any physical business, um, we want to be their first phone call as their business partner. And, and that's why we're inventing so many products uh, to allow them to find ways to grow and reach new customers and new ordering occasions. And, and you highlighted a couple of them. You know, During the pandemic, we saw restaurants get very inventive and creative, selling different types of food um, from the same kitchen. You know, a Chinese restaurant selling now Mexican food and, and, and many versions of this. In fact, we've seen, you know, tens of thousands of these types of opportunities, these virtual brands and stores rise on the platform literally from zero just a couple of years ago. Um, we also saw new innovation, you know, where restaurants are now shipping 
um, some of their foods, whether it's you know frozen foods from places like Lumanati's and their great delicious deep dish pizza in Chicago, um, you know to Carlos Bakery, um, you know and, and their amazingly delicious cookies. I mean to other restaurants who are now recognizing they're not just um, a place that sells food, but a place that sells merchandise. And so you know they're selling their cookbooks, they're selling their stories, they're selling cooking classes. All of these things. Um, really are part of the, the new suite in building a digital business. Hey, Tony, um, retail gasoline up 22 cents in three weeks. Uh, diesel, uh, all-time high, 550. I just wonder how you think about fuel surcharges and how broadly you're deploying them, if at all, and, how, and what the line is to, to pull them back if we, in fact, do get some relief down the road. Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, looking at the rising cost of fuel is something that, you know, we've been studying literally for the past, you know, four to six quarters now. And that's why we introduced the gas rewards program to Dashers to make sure that their earnings wouldn't be impacted by this rising cost in fuel. And we've extended that program through the end of August now. Um, we weren't seeing actually we, we didn't even you know prior to the to the you know in- increases in fuel costs that you've been describing we actually didn't see any challenges in getting dashers on the road in fact we had you know um, you know record uh, highs in terms of um, dashers on the platform but it's the right thing to do we wanted to make sure that their earnings weren't impacted and we're fortunate as a business to have those profits to be able to reinvest back into the drivers without passing on the cost to consumers. Uh, Tony, I wish we had more time, but that's all we got. I didn't even get to ask you about Dashmart. We'll do that next time. Uh, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks so much, Deidre. John? Now let's come back to this volatile tech trade. And let me give a check on the markets overall. As we were speaking, the major indices climbed all back closer to break even. The Dow now down just about 44, 45 points. The S&P off uh, just a, a fraction of a percent, 0.07%. The NASDAQ off just uh, you know, just about flat, actually. Let's bring in Invesco Global, head of ETFs and index strategies, Anna Paglia. Anna, good morning. Um, this has been a, a week with just kind of major indices all over the place. We're not that far from where we started, but it feels like we've learned something. What have you learned? Well, John, the, the first thing that, that I have learned, which is the hardest uh, uh, lesson, is uh, everybody needs to separate substance from noise. What do I mean by that? Keep separate the fundamentals from headlines because what I've seen in the last few weeks, and this week has been just incredible, is markets are being driven by headlines. Look at what happened on Wednesday when Chair Powell said we are taking off the 75 basis points hike from the table and markets exploded. The headlines turned negative yesterday and markets dropped. So there is a lot of noise coming from headlines. Uh, Investors are worried. Markets are reacting to that. Uh, Why? Why? wouldn't they be worried? Uh, Everybody's thinking about inflation. Can the Fed really engineer a soft landing? COVID lockdowns in China, are they putting additional pressure on the supply chain? Uh, So this is is all making up for a perfect storm and uh, volatility. Guess what? Volatility is going to persist. If you like volatility, Fasten your seatbelts because this is going to be a bumpy ride. Yeah. But let me tell you one thing. There is one thing that doesn't lie, and that's flows. Money rarely lies. And in the last week, we have seen 
flows are coming fast and furious into the QQQ and QQQM, we registered something like $1.5 billion of new money coming into tech this week alone. Yeah, but what does that tell you, Wen? And here's what puzzles me about this week and the past couple of weeks. This was a lot of the data that we were waiting for. We were waiting for earnings and guidance to the degree that we would get it. We were waiting to hear uh, not only exactly what the Fed was going to do with rates, but what the messaging was going to be around that. And, you know, my thought was maybe we'll get some clarity around that and volatility, at least for a short period of time, would die down. But that didn't happen. Post earnings, even though a lot of it was positive, you know, the market's jerking around quite a bit. Powell, perfect example. Shoots up, then shoots down, uh, and now we're back to break even again. If, if we've got volatility with information, my goodness, what are we going to do without information? I totally, totally agree with you, John. It, uh, it puzzles uh, me as well because uh, information is there and information is, is not all that bad. And if you look at uh, tech companies and what they registered this quarter, is actually pretty good information. So I'm looking at uh, Amazon Web Services, for example, which is the cloud of Amazon. That arm delivered $18 billion in revenues, and that's 36.5% year-over-year growth. Uh, look at the Microsoft Cloud as well, which is, uh, you know, revenues grew by 32% in the most recent quarter. It's now over $23 billion. So numbers are good. It's just uh, Everything that is around the numbers is all the uncertainty about the other factors that companies and investors cannot control. This is what really contributes to what we are witnessing today, which is a period of heightened volatility. However, volatility does not equal bear markets, and people forget that. Anna, um, if... ETF flows are a good proxy of where investors think the money is. I wonder what you make of Kathy Wood's ARK ETF receiving its biggest inflow in a year earlier this week. Her fans are buying the dip despite the performance. What do you make of that? Well, investors are buying her high conviction. Uh, so ARK is, uh, is a proxy for concentrated strategies, uh, taking risks with uh, a manager that has a really high conviction. Uh, this is not dissimilar from what we see in our flows, even if our strategies are different. Uh, I mean, as I said, we registered $1.2 billion of flows yesterday alone, and yesterday the fund was down 5%. So to me, that really indicates the fact that uh, there is a little bit of uh, um, fear of missing out from investors. They, they don't believe that the technology sector is under pressure and those companies are set to fail. So investors are really trying to jump into the sector again when they believe that information is going to become available, something is going to change in the uh, macro uh, level, and uh, uh, you know, numbers are going to turn and are going to come around. We, we, we have a high conviction that this is going to happen in the queues. We have a high conviction in the tech sector. So I'm, I'm really not surprised to see that. All right. Uh, we'll, we'll just about call it a week as we continue to wait to see how this day plays out. Anna Paglia, Invesco Global Head of ETS and Index Strategies. Thank you. Thank you. Our next guest has an AUM of over 320 billion dollars runs the 11th largest public pension fund in the world 
CalSTRS Chris Ailman is coming up next as the NASDAQ's hanging on the gains just barely. Tech Check's back in a moment. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? <clears throat> the real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. Welcome back. I'm Morgan Brennan, and here is what is happening at this hour. President Biden is celebrating and taking credit for what he is calling, quote, the strongest job creation economy in modern times. The Labor Department reported this morning that 428,000 jobs were added to the economy in April. That's more than economists had predicted. The unemployment rate held steady at 3.6 percent, just above its lowest level in 50 years. Shares of Under Armour are down more than 24 percent. The sportswear company's outlook for its upcoming fiscal year is disappointing Wall Street. It's also reporting an unexpected loss in weak sales for the most recent quarter, blaming supply chain problems and weaker demand due to COVID lockdowns in China. And Unilever, the company that makes Ben & Jerry's, thinks it can warm up ice cream freezers to save energy. In two international pilots, it will experiment with going from the industry standard of just under zero degrees Fahrenheit to a bit more than 10 degrees. If what it calls the product performance of its ice cream doesn't suffer, it plans to phase in the higher temperature freezers worldwide. Back over to you, Carl. Interesting. I don't know. Melty ice cream, not always a good thing, Morgan. Thank you. Doesn't Morgan always Brennan. refreeze right. That's right. Uh, let's take a deeper dive into the ongoing volatility today. Our next guest oversees the world's largest educators pension fund, around $310 billion in assets under management. He is worried about the current environment, staying relatively neutral in this market. Joining us this morning, Calster CIO, Chris Aylman. Chris, welcome back. Happy Friday. Happy Friday. Good to see you, Carl. It sounds like you're more into rotation right now uh, than outright selling, trying to get into areas that allow you to protect against inflation. Exactly. We are actually underweight equity and global equity, and we're going longer in inflation-sensitive assets. It's tough to hedge against inflation. Just like Warren Buffett said, he didn't name a specific stock that you could buy. It's a basket of things to protect you against inflation. But that's absolutely the biggest risk right now. So does that mean more runway ahead for, I guess, not just obvious high yielders, but things that are commodity-based? I think so. You know, I, I don't know that inflation is going to stay all the way up at eight. I think we'll cool off, but inflation is going to stay well above the Fed's target of 2% and stay probably in the five or higher range throughout this year. Uh, this, this job market is baffling to me, and I think that's going to push wages. Uh, we'll see. But uh, the supply chain, the Fed can't fix that, but they are going to raise rates, raise rates, raise rates, and people need to pay attention to that. 
Chris, as you shift your allocation, what are you doing with cash? Currently, 2% target. I know you're above that at 2.5. Will that go up further in this environment? You know, Deidre, we have a lot of, of uh, money that is due out in private equity, uh, real estate opportunities, even some infrastructure. So we keep that high just because of those kinds of payouts. Uh, I don't think we're going to go much higher because cash is still trash. Uh, that's an old adage, but it's still true, unfortunately, because it's not even beating inflation right now. So mm -hmm. it's for our liquidity for those longer term investments that we've committed to. Chris, how closely are you looking at big employers, some of which are in tech, but not all, that have uh, these workforces that are increasingly moving toward unionizing. How does that affect costs? What does that say, uh, not only about the overall economy, but the risks in certain stocks that perhaps have performed well up to this point? You know, John, it's an interesting question because it sure is a very interesting move. Unionization had been declining for so many decades, but to suddenly see it on the upside, and it's in these entry-level jobs. Uh, and you see all the help-wanted signs everywhere. So there's no question the employee has the power. And when they do, they're going to unionize. I think it's just a long-term trend, something we'll have to monitor. Um, and I don't know that it will necessarily automatically hurt companies. Uh, I think they need to pay attention to workers. This entry-level, and you just talked to, to DoorDash and, and the the gig economy worker. I was amazed when he said that people only drove 10 hours a week. I don't know how you make a living at 10 hours a week, but it's <laughs> the fact that employees have options and they're going to move around like crazy. Chris, I, I want to get your take on some sentiment and positioning. Obviously, we're getting big swings this week, but we were just talking about some of the inflows into uh, funds like Kathy Wood's ARC, which a lot of the street argues is not giving you the washout that you would be looking for if you were looking to buy tech down the road. Do you agree with that? You know, uh, Carl, I'm, I'm very concerned about this market. Uh, there are two powerful indicators we look at that signal that we're in for some very extreme volatility. Doesn't always mean it's gonna happen, but they're initial indicators that always preclude volatility. And, and we've already talked about it. That's the inverted yield curve, which we've had a couple of times so far this year. And then we watch the number of days of 2% moves, that extreme volatility. And over a third, over a third of the days this year so far have been over 2% moves. Sometimes that's a false signal, but inevitably it always occurs before we have a huge volatility period. So I think people need to be actually very cautious in here. And mm -hmm. I've said before, I wouldn't be chasing the dips at this point. Okay, Chris, when it comes to the mega caps, how are you thinking about them? I mean, they, the fall off has really been remarkable as well as, you know, giving up some of that market leadership. Has something structurally changed for some of them or are you looking at this as an opportunity? I'm not looking at it as an opportunity, Deirdre. I, I think the only thing that structurally changed is, is all those day traders had to go back to the office and go back to work. So it's taken some of the steam away from them. They got overheated. They got overextended. Uh, and, you know, earnings matter. Uh, it's not just future forecasts, but actual present day earnings matter. Um, those stocks are strong, but they didn't need to be at those lofty levels. Uh, we're seeing that rotation in the mega caps, and I think that's long overdue. Uh, so I'm not surprised. Chris, I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated, finally, by Walmart in particular, because it's one of those companies, you're talking about inflation starting off. It's one of those companies that in a tough economy, uh, they often get an influx of people 
looking to, to find bargains and get what they need. At the same time, they've been doing this transformation toward e-commerce. E-commerce has been suffering. Can we look at Walmart, you think, as a kind of a bellwether, how they handle spending, what they're seeing grow as some kind of a signal, uh, both for the economy in general and for investors and what we should do? I think that probably is a very valuable uh, uh, indicator because the consumer is still 70% of the economy and Walmart is a huge part of that consumer economy. So anything that's occurring at Walmart is really what's telling you outside of New York and off the island, when you look out at the rest of the country, which I know you, from your perspective, is, is small, but that rest of the country shops at Walmart and that gives you some indications probably on one on the labor side, how hard it is for them to hire people and, and retain employees, but also where the consumer is shopping for bargains. People, the, the vast majority of our population has never seen inflation like they're experiencing now. Uh, and that's just a sticker shock and gonna hit them all through the summer. Uh, as Powell said on Wednesday, uh, periods of inflation are, are not very familiar to some and they are unpleasant, as he, as he put it. Uh, Chris, uh, th thanks for the take. We'll look forward to talking again soon. Chris Ailman of Calsters. By the way, as we've been talking, you can see from some of the intraday charts, we did go green on the Dow S&P for just a moment. Uh, but some of these uh, rallies are getting sold, at least uh, in the very early going. Watch the 10-year, too, uh, D. 312 yeah. earlier today as settling now back below 309. But that's going to drive a lot of the action. Yeah, and in terms of individual names, check out uh, Cloudflare's. We had to break those shares are slumping big as we, after results lower than expected, operating cash flow, decelerating billings, adding pressure there. BTIG calling it, quote, a strong report in an unforgiving market for tech. We'll break down another name on the move after results. That would be blocked. Stay with us. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. <laughs> That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. <laughs> I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Go check on a fintech stock that's had some heavy losses year to date. That's Block. The company formerly known as Square posting a miss in Q1, revenue and profits falling below consensus. But both adjusted EBITDA and gross income from Cash App exceeded expectations. Block saying on the call they hadn't seen any deterioration in consumer spending through April. Shares are back to about even after picking up where they left off yesterday much of the morning. The stock is trading about where it was Wednesday and Thursday, but down, uh, Carl, from where it started the week. Yeah, we've been using this, John, as an example of a name where you did have uh, a beat on EBITDA, but gross payment volume was a miss, D. Revenue mm -hmm. was a miss, and then managed to trade okay. Maybe, I mean, does that connote uh, a new part of this cycle? We don't know yet. 
Well, it was really Cash App that was the standout, right? That's what a lot of folks on Wall Street are pointing to. And it's kind of amazing what the team has been able to do with this. When you consider that Venmo over at PayPal had such a head start in the space that was originally P2P, peer-to-peer payments, um, Block figured out how to monetize earlier, cross-sell its customers. Gross profit for Cash App grew by 15% year over year, Carl, uh, which kind of tells you that it is making use of that user base that a lot of the fintechs from Robinhood to Coinbase to PayPal are all trying to do. Yeah, an inflation-sensitive user base, though. I wonder how long that will continue to work. Yeah, good point. We'll see. Carl? Yep, we've we've talked about uh, the credit risk in fintech for a long time. And a lot, of those, uh, a lot of those scenarios are now here. One area to t- of tech to watch is space and SPACs. Virgin Galactic shares down today. The company, as you know, delaying the launch of its commercial space flight service to 2023. Supply chain and labor constraints are the issue there. And, of course, valuations have already crumbled across the sector. Planet Labs and Virgin have plunged since January. With the Dow now back down 200. We're back in a couple of minutes. Social stocks, just one of the many spots of tech that have seen big losses. Our Julia Borston has a breakdown of some of those moves and where investors now are looking for opportunity, Julia. Well, Carl, a lot of volatility today, but those social stocks continue to drop after they were slammed yesterday, continuing their declines this year. We see a lot of these stocks and investors reacting to interest rate contractions and also concerns about broad advertising headwinds. Now, Meta shares, um, they are down about 1% today after dropping 7% yesterday mid reports that Meta is halting hiring. We see Snap shares uh, down nearly five, or about 5% after dropping nearly 10% yesterday. Pinterest is actually back into the green today after losing 7% Thursday, though that stock is off of more than 60% in the past 12 months. And Twitter shares reacting to news that Elon Musk plans to be Twitter CEO and then take the company public again, according to reports. That bucked the trend yesterday and gained 3%, though it is down about another 1% today. Now, media stocks are down, but the streamers are down far more than the traditional media players after some concerns sparked initially by Netflix and its earnings about a saturated market and cash-strapped consumers perhaps shifting more to ad-supported services. Netflix shares down about 3.5% today after falling 8% yesterday. Uh, At one point, Netflix was down at its lowest levels in September of 2017. We see Roku shares down nearly 4% um, after a a decline of nearly 7% yesterday. Fubo on a downgrade after its earnings yesterday afternoon. That stock is down 18% today. Vimeo was also hit by a downgrade, but it's pretty much flat right now. Now, Disney is down some 2%. Paramount and Warner Brothers Discovery, they are down 6% and 4.5% respectively. Comcast faring uh, faring a little bit better than that. It's down about 2%. Now, the telco sector, that has been holding up better in trading today. We see uh, AT&T down about 1%, Verizon down less than half a percent, and T-Mobile down 1.5%, perhaps that those stocks are seeing more as utilities uh, in this day and age. Now, in terms of the music streamers, got to point out that Spotify is flat. It was up about 2% earlier today, though it did fall 6% yesterday. Now, guys, we want to keep our eye on Disney because that company is going to be reporting earnings next week. We're going to have to see how Disney's outlook, particularly when it comes to streaming, moves that media and streaming sector. Guys? 
Julia uh, Meta, Facebook, still the biggest social name out there. I just think it's interesting how that stock has fared since uh, last quarter when they, you know, stunk up the place with earnings. It's actually off the very lowest levels. I wonder if there's a sense out there that, at least for that one company, a lot of the bad news is, is in the soup. Yeah, I think that was a lot of the perception coming out of Meta's most recent earnings and this idea that, John, that, you know, they're no longer losing those those users. And even though there's still plenty of headwinds ahead, at least they've gotten that engagement issue more under control. But it's been fascinating watching MetaShares today because they were up in the green earlier. Now they're down about 1%. But I think there's this question of they're the, the issues that Meta cannot control, such as an advertiser contraction. And then there are the ones that there are making progress on, such as, um, you know, monetizing reels, John, or also this idea of making progress against better targeting in light of some of those challenges from Apple's operating system changes. So some signs of optimism. And I also, John, think that investors like that Meta is going to be a little bit more uh, uh, conservative about spending now. Yeah, that's their signature move is to say we're going to spend all this money. And then they come back and say, "Okay, we're not going to spend all the money. Uh, Julia, thanks. Now, how about a name doing well as all the major indices in the red right now? Check out the chips. AMD holding on to a gain of more than 12% since Monday, up two and a third at the moment now, despite the volatility. It is on pace for its best week since February. More on today's market action is after the break. Don't go away. investors aren't the only ones watching valuations fall across the sector. Companies are too. Some key names are seeing huge losses on their investments in the industry. Amazon, Uber, Alphabet, Shopify posting billion dollar plus losses on equity investments in the first quarter alone. Out on Snap, Qualcomm, Microsoft, Oracle. Total losses top $17 billion. Head to CNBC.com to read more. It's a great piece from Annie Palmer. We're back in just a moment. Yet another day of big swings for the NASDAQ as the index falls even further, about 1% at the moment after its worst day since 2020. Christina Parks-Nevelis joins us with some names on the move. Christina? Yeah, yeah, we're seeing quite the turnaround right now, but uncertainty remains pretty extreme. Volatility like this is an inevitable consequence and a reason why we're seeing the Nasdaq still headed for its fifth straight weekly decline, even though it's still only down about 1%. That would be the longest weekly losing streak since 2012. Right now, we're staging a comeback, so I'm going to focus on that. And the big question a lot of people are asking, is history repeating itself? Tech stocks have declined around 20% since the NASDAQ composite peaked back in December 2021. I've heard this retreat right now is actually being compared to the first five months following the bursting of the tech bubble back in March 2000, where we saw a decline of 18%. But I want to bring it back to today. The NASDAQ 100, the sibling of the NASDAQ but contains no financial stocks, has unfortunately been dragged down by big tech. Why? Because of their weight on the index. So you've got Amazon right now on pace for its sixth weekly decline, which is its longest since 2019. The others, though, doing better. Apple, Microsoft, Tesla, Alphabet up on the week. Apple really showing a turnaround just within the last uh, few hours. You can see uh, on your screen right now. The largest swings, though, I want to focus on the downside for the NASDAQ 100 are CrowdStrike, Lululemon, Moderna, Okta. Uh, And there are other several names, too, 
I want to end on a positive note that are poised for weekly gains. You got three solar stocks like Array Technology, Run, Enphase. You can see all in the green right now. Enphase in particular above its 200-day moving average, a key support level. And then some chips too we could throw in there, Supermicro and Western Digital. The bottom line, though, is clear enough. Elevated inflation and the growing reaction to it in mon monetary policy, policy sorry, are causing a steady increase. We know in bond yields and a steady fall in share prices, especially within tech, as we can see here at the Nasdaq behind me. Dee? Christina, thank you. Just took a look at EPAM, too, which uh, Dom brought us yesterday. Up again. Uh, before we go, we are checking in on the ARK Innovation ETF. And if it's overvalued or undervalued, might be an easy question for some. But remember, it has, as you probably know, taken quite a tumble, falling nearly 9% on Thursday. We're seeing further losses this morning to the tune of 4%. It has officially erased all of its pandemic gains. And some are comparing this popular fund to a burst bubble. It's two-year rise and fall looking eerily similar to the dot-com bust from 20 years ago. Take a look at that. That said, though, some are holding on to hope. We talked about this earlier. The ETF saw its biggest inflows in a year on Tuesday to the tune of more than $300 million, marking three straight weeks of the positive trend. Uh, Carl, I tweeted about this, uh, I think, earlier this morning or last night. She only needs one, right? Remember Masasan during the dot-com bust? Uh, nearly all of his investments went bust, but he had his Alibaba, which allowed him to later raise $100 billion, do it all over again. Yep. Uh, John, the tape has an item on how all of her components in the ARK ETF are down except for one Dreyfus money management, uh, cash uh, money market. Yeah, it's not really a trade, Carl. It's Kentucky basketball. It's Texas football. It's, it's a belief system. Yeah. <laughs> Next week, of course, earnings will fall off, but we'll get CPI Wednesday. Have a great weekend. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.